I was recently browsing about in Powell's Books up in Portland, Oregon, which is heaven for a book nerd. There I was, in, of course, the Jewish section, feeling rather pleased with myself for already owning so many books on display, when I chanced upon a rare find. The two-volume, easily ten pounds, hardbound, complete biography of Vladimir Jabotinsky. I texted a couple of friends that I wanted to buy it, not because I had any intention of actually reading both volumes, but, you know, just to say that I did. So we've been talking about Vladimir Jabotinsky on and off the last few episodes. After Herzl, he is probably the most influential and important Zionist leader, and he is by far the most controversial. Because from him, we get right-wing Zionism, the tree branch that most clashes with the Arabs, that most aggressively seeks as much land as possible for the Jewish state, and that sets up antagonistic relations with other branches of the Zionist tree that Israel is still fighting over today. But from Jabotinsky, we also get the Jewish self-defense movement. The paramilitary organizations like the Haganah, which developed to defend Jewish settlements and lives from attack. And although it seems ironic, he was also an advocate for equal rights for Arabs, and for a social democratic form of government in the Jewish state. So, he's a complicated guy. But his overall ideology was this. The Arabs will never accept the Jewish homeland in Palestine. Therefore, the Jews will have to defend it, and arm themselves with force. And the way to do that is to build what he called an iron wall. You only need to read a few articles about current events in Israel today to see how this foundational principle is still Israel's posture, and still plays a huge role in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Jabotinsky is still very much influencing what's happening in Israel today, so that's today's episode. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Yosef Chaim Brenner was one of the early pioneers of Hebrew literature, a member of the Labor Zionist Tree Branch who immigrated to Palestine with the Second Aliyah in 1909. He was a supporter of the Zionist movement and its ideals, but also very pessimistic about Zionism's ability to solve the Jews' problems. The Jews, he thought, would have to fight for themselves and their rights and dignity wherever they lived, whether in Europe or in Palestine. So Zionism wasn't the elegant solution that would fix everything. The last episode, I told the story about Tel Hai, the Jewish settlement that was attacked by the Arabs in 1920, during which Trumpledor and five others were killed. Writing about it shortly afterwards, Brenner wrote, and it's worth quoting in full, A cold calculation would have left no room for doubt that Tel Hai should have been evacuated. But the heart, the selfless heart, believed in miracles. It believed the normal laws would be suspended, that devotion was everything, that love for a piece of earth could move mountains. Besides, if we left every place in which there was danger, there would be no place we would not have to leave, no position we would not have to retreat from. But to where? And what now? Danger is everywhere. And when tomorrow or the day after it overtakes us in this or that form, will we know, every one of us, that we have no choice? Will we realize the necessity of rising to the occasion? Will each one of us stand his ground with the name of Trumpledore and Trumpledore's comrades on his lips in the place chosen for him by destiny? 
few writers fulfill the fate of their own words, but Chaim Brenner would. Just a year later, in 1921, a riot broke out in Jaffa between Jews and Arabs and spread to nearby communities. I also talked about it last week. Brenner and a few others, faced with that same decision to flee or stay as he said Trumpledore had, also chose to stay and defend their farm and themselves. He was murdered by the Arab mob. And in his martyrdom, he became a powerful symbol of persistence in the face of hopelessness, a common theme in Jewish history from Masada to the Holocaust. This idea of standing defiant, of making our own fate against great odds, and fighting for our lives and dignity. As Hillel Halkin recently wrote, Chaim Brenner's decision to remain committedly in Palestine, despite his conviction that Zionism would fail, was, paradoxically, held to be the ultimate Zionist act. Nevertheless, we will stand firm, Halkin writes of this Zionist ethos. Nevertheless, we will endure even if the situation seems hopeless. Vladimir Zaev Jabotinsky was not one to stand around waiting for hopeless situations to resolve themselves. He was big on the standing firm maxim. Actually, he was big on the fighting back part, too. He came from Russia. He was born in 1880, and by his own admission, and so similar to many other Zionist leaders like Herzl, he had very little of what we would call Jewish identity growing up. He felt no interconnection with Judaism, he said, and no involvement in Jewish culture. But he did witness firsthand the persecution, oppression, and violent pogroms which inflicted the Jewish communities in Russia. He took it upon himself to organize small local self-defense groups there to try to fend off these attacks, which sometimes had some modest success. He also became enamored with Zionism and Herzl, and made himself a leader of the Zionist movement in Russia. So coming from these kinds of experiences, he wasn't willing to just say, well, we'll do the best we can even if it's hopeless. He was determined to build an effective Jewish fighting force for self-defense in the Yishuv, the Jewish community of Palestine. And by the way, this wasn't exactly a secret. These weren't underground militias. Not only did Jabotinsky want the British to know what he was doing, he wanted the British to officially authorize the creation of these Jewish self-defense units and to support them. And these units weren't for attacking the Arabs. Jabotinsky was about training local Jews to defend themselves against attack. The British understood what he was trying to do, but they weren't big fans. As we saw last week, there's a continuous theme of the Jews protesting that the British didn't do enough to protect them against the Arabs. Jabotinsky led a fruitless effort at Jewish self-defense during the 1920 riot in Jerusalem's Old City. That earned him a heap of trouble from the British, but it gained him prominence in the Yishuv as the primary defender of the Jews. He was elected to a senior leadership post in the World Zionist Organization, which had been established by Theodore Herzl back in 1897. In 1920, it was headed up by my birthday buddy, Chaim Weitzman. And here is where the drama started. So Jabotinsky had three main disagreements with the mainstream Zionist movement led by Weitzman. One was over the nature of relations with the Arabs, the other was over Jewish immigration to Palestine, and the third was over how much territory should constitute the Jewish national home. So, first the Arabs. 
As far back as the 1890s, Ahad Ha'am, the leader of the cultural Zionist tree branch, was warning the fledgling Zionist movement to be mindful of the native Arab population in Palestine. He condemned early Jewish settlers, whom he accused of behaving contemptuously towards the Arabs. He gave notice that the Arabs weren't going to just step aside for the Jews, but would eventually rise up. Zionism made a fundamental mistake from the very beginning. Let's acknowledge that. It wasn't that the movement was hostile to the Arabs, because it wasn't. It was that Zionism was indifferent. The Zionist movement was inwardly focused on the Jews and their needs, and chose to ignore the native Arabs, to kind of kick that can down the road to when the future Jewish homeland would be established. The mainstream Zionist leadership thought that the Arabs would welcome the Jews, since Zionism would bring economic prosperity and political freedom to Palestine. And they were right, technically. The more Jews who immigrated to Palestine, the more the economy approved, and the more Arabs then moved to Palestine to take advantage of that. In that respect, it was a good relationship. But as we've seen, the Arabs generally rejected the Balfour Declaration, the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, and most especially, Jewish immigration. By the time the Arabs rioted against the Jews in 1920 and 1921, Zionist leaders had caught on to Ahad Ha'am's warning. And they also had to manage a difficult relationship with the British, who were not, as we saw last week, necessarily favorably disposed towards the Jews. The British tended to blame the Jews, even when the Arabs instigated the violence. So Chaim Weizmann and the other Zionist leaders adopted what became known as the gradualist approach. We can sum it up as, have patience. Don't rock the boat too much, try to get along with everyone, and eventually things will work out for the best when we get our Jewish homeland and eventually, after that, our state. The idea was to work closely and collegially with the British, to have as much Jewish immigration as the British would allow, and to keep trying to convince the Arabs to accept the Jewish homeland. Well, Jabotinsky was going to have none of this. And in 1923, he wrote a manifesto called The Iron Wall. The Iron Wall came to a single conclusion, which informed all the rest of his ideology. The Arabs, he believed, would never ever voluntarily accept the Jewish homeland. No amount of negotiation would convince them. Therefore, there was no point in even trying. He didn't believe in negotiation at this time. The Arabs would only ever accept the Jewish homeland, Jabotinsky wrote, when there is no longer any hope of getting rid of us, because they can make no breach in the Iron Wall. In other words, the Arabs will accept the Jewish presence in Palestine only because they have to, not because they want to. That Iron Wall was an organized and effective system of Jewish self-defense. The Zionist movement was already on the road to that. In 1921, they pulled together the various self-defense units into one central body called Haganah, which means the defense between Arab hostility and the reluctance of Britain to effectively police or to support Jewish self-defense measures the Jews were coming to a realization that would be one of the pillars of future Israeli life and policy. That we can only rely on ourselves for our own security. This idea had been morphing from the early 1900s, when Jewish guards replaced Arab guards at Jewish settlements. But it was still limited. As aggressive as Jabotinsky was about this iron wall, Jewish self-defense was still mostly just self-defense. There was almost no appetite for creating an offensive force to attack either the Arabs or the British. That, too, would change in the 1930s. But it wasn't only about getting guns in the hands of the Jews. It was also about getting as many Jews into Palestine as possible. And here's where Jabotinsky differed again from the gradualists in Chaim Weizmann's camp. Jabotinsky was a maximalist. 
He believed in massive immigration under the Balfour Declaration and bringing so many tens of thousands of Jews into Palestine every year until they became the majority population and couldn't be either ignored by the British or defeated by the Arabs. 40,000 Jews a year ought to do it, he thought, although that might not seem to be a particularly large number. Consider that in 1922 there were only 87,000 Jews in Palestine and 650,000 Muslims. Weitzman and the Zionist leadership had reluctantly accepted the Churchill White Paper of 1922, talked about that last week, which reinterpreted the Balfour Declaration to limit Jewish immigration to the undefined economic capacity of Palestine. Jabotinsky thought that was BS. He insisted that the Zionist movement should demand that the British rescind that policy to allow unlimited immigration. There was also the question of territory. What territory should make up the Jewish homeland? The creation of Israel in 1948 essentially resolved the questions of Jewish self-defense and immigration. The Haganah turned into the Israel Defense Forces, and Israeli law allows for unlimited Jewish immigration. But the question of territory, as we all know from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, remains open. The Zionist movement from its beginnings considered three fundamental ideas about what territory should constitute the Jewish national home. For most of Israeli history, even until today, where you come down on this question generally defines your political viewpoint and your party association, in much the same way that your opinion on the welfare state or hot-button social issues defines whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Okay, so one way of looking at territory is to say that if the goal is to be safe from anti-Semitism, then anywhere the Jews can establish a majority of the population will be good enough. That is, the Jewish state can be anywhere. And this was often the position of early Zionist leaders, including Theodore Herzl. In 1903, the Zionist Congress passed, with his support, a vote to send an expedition to investigate Uganda as a possible Jewish homeland. Although Herzl insisted that the Jewish state eventually be in Palestine, in the meantime, he argued, given the extent of Jewish suffering, especially in Russia, anywhere will do as a temporary Jewish homeland. Let's just get them out of there. The Uganda plan was very controversial, and two years later, after Herzl had died, the Congress rejected it. Other places that were considered for Jewish homeland included Libya, Iraq, Australia, and Canada, even Texas and actually 10,000 Jews went to Galveston, Texas before World War I. The Balfour Declaration in 1917, it pretty much killed off this perspective, since it made real the viability of Palestine as the future Jewish homeland. But that still leaves a couple ways of looking at the territory of Palestine. In ancient times and up through the Roman era, the Jews were located inland from the Mediterranean Sea and on both sides of the Jordan River, and here's the essential point that you really have to understand. Most of the holiest Jewish sites, the most important places referenced in the Torah and connected archaeologically to Jewish history, are located in what is today the West Bank and parts of Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. There are several sites up in the Golan Heights, which until 1967 was Syria. The Western Wall, of course, is in Jerusalem, but it wasn't under Jewish control until also 1967. In Hebron, you have the Cave of Machpelah, the Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs are buried. That's the West Bank. Rachel, one of the wives of Jacob, is buried in Bethlehem, also the West Bank. The tomb of Joseph is in Nablus, also the West Bank. Mount Nebo 
from where Moses sent the Israelites into the promised land and where he died is in Jordan. And numerous ancient synagogues and other buildings connected to the Israelite kingdoms have been found in all of these areas. But along the coast, there's not very much. Jaffa was a part of the Israelite kingdom, but Tel Aviv certainly wasn't. It didn't exist. It's just a beach. There's no connection to Jewish history there, except for its proximity to Jaffa. So if you are someone who believes that the Jewish homeland ought to be established on the land where the Jews are indigenous, well then that would include most of modern day Israel, the west bank of the Jordan River, and the east bank, which is today the kingdom of Jordan, as well as parts of Syria and Lebanon and even a few places in Egypt. In fact, you don't even refer to the West Bank as the West Bank. You call it Judea and Samaria, which is what it was called in ancient times. In other words, wherever the Jews had sovereignty is to be considered indelibly Jewish and therefore part of the Jewish homeland, not to ever be given away to someone else. This was the kind of territorial maximalism that Jabotinsky advocated and one that he insisted was supported by the Balfour Declaration, if only the British would adhere to the letter of their own law. The Arabs have the whole Middle East in which to live, he figured, while the Jews in Europe were faced with destruction. And so the moral case was clear and urgent, and could not suffer any compromise with the rejectionist Arabs. With some nuance, this is the basis of right-wing Zionism, of the right-wing perspective in Israel with regarding territory and land in Israel. Well, this put Jabotinsky at odds with Weizmann and the Zionist leadership. Although they too insisted that the Jewish homeland be in Palestine, they were much more open to working constructively with the British to determine just how much of Palestine would eventually be Jewish. This gradualist view was the one adopted by mainstream Zionism, and most of Israeli history has generally held to this viewpoint, even the right-wing prime ministers. Even when Israel captured the West Bank in 1967, it did not formally annex the territory into Israel even though many on the right wing, both then and now, wanted it to. Of course, having the West Bank in this kind of limbo is a huge part of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict today, but the point is that before and even after its establishment, Israel has generally held the perspective that when it comes to territory, we'll take what we can get now, and we'll see later on down the road about opportunities for expanding into what was once ancient Jewish territory. Well, all this was the final straw for Vladimir Jabotinsky. In 1925, he picked up his toys and left his leadership post in the Zionist movement to start his own Zionist tree branch. He called it Revisionist Zionism. What was he revising? Well, the relationship between the Zionists and the British. As we discussed, he thought the labor Zionists currently running the movement were too gradual, too timid, too accommodating to both the British and the Arabs, he wanted the full support of the British for a Jewish defense force, for unlimited Jewish immigration, and for an interpretation of the Balfour Declaration, which would include all of Palestine as the future Jewish homeland. Today's modern Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, Jordan. Jabotinsky then, he wasn't against the British. He was actually so loyal to the British Empire that he wanted, expected, and demanded their maximum support, in a way that the labor Zionists sometimes wanted to keep the British a bit at arm's length. We also shouldn't ascribe nefarious intentions towards the Arabs. Jabotinsky's Iron Wall ideology was indeed militaristic and uncompromising. Although he occasionally did express his support for expelling the Arabs from Palestine for the purposes of Jewish self-defense, at other times he rejected that idea. 
He insisted that the Jews should respect the Arabs' presence, should not deliberately provoke them, or use the Haganah to stage attacks. If an Arab walks up to you and insults you, he said, do not answer, never strike first. But if he hits you once, hit back twice as hard. Look, he was saying in his 1923 Iron Wall Manifesto, it isn't possible to have an agreement with the Arabs because they will never accept our presence here. And yet, as he wrote in the introduction to that essay, I am prepared to take an oath, binding ourselves and our descendants, that we shall never do anything contrary to the principle of equal rights, and that we shall never try to eject anyone. He wrote that it would anyway be impossible to eject the Arabs from Palestine. The land will always have two nations living there. Which is good enough for me, he wrote, provided that the Jews become the majority. Jabotinsky's revisionist Zionism ideology is reflected in today's Israeli leadership. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, his Likud party, and the other parties in the right wing in Israel. Of course, it's been nearly a century and the geopolitics have changed considerably, so today's right wing in Israel is very different than Jabotinsky's convictions. Detailing that's a whole other podcast episode way down the line. The question of whether Jabotinsky was right or wrong, or if Weizmann was, is also an open one. And it really depends on your perspective. Like so many of the other opposing visionaries of the Zionist movement, both were right in some places and wrong in others. And it all depends on what perspective you want to take and in what kind of time frame. If we believe that European anti-Semitism and persecution was the single most important thing, then Jabotinsky was surely right. And for our proof, we only need to advance 20 years into the future to the Holocaust. Had the Zionist movement adopted Jabotinsky's plan to accept 40,000 Jewish immigrants every year, they would have saved hundreds of thousands of Jewish lives. To the extent that that would have risked provoking the Arabs even further, well, as Jabotinsky said, the moral case is a clear one. But if our timeline is Israeli history up to today, then Weizmann's mainstream Zionist perspective seems to have prevailed. The Arab-Israeli conflict has, of course, been confrontational to the point of extreme violence, but his approach of gradualism, of cooperation, of measured acceptance of limited territory, and therefore a willingness to give up land for peace, has been pretty much successful for Israel. Of course, we could also argue that it is thanks to the Iron Wall, the military strength and accomplishments of the Israel Defense Forces, that led Egypt and Jordan to conclude peace treaties with Israel. So the historical reality is that Israel today is a mix of both Weizmann and Jabotinsky, of the ideologies of cooperation and unparalleled strength, and democracy and equal rights. In any case, Jabotinsky's nemesis in the Zionist movement wasn't Weizmann. It was another Jewish immigrant of Eastern European extraction, a man who was fast rising in the 1920s as the dominant personality and essential leader of the Yishuv. His name is David Grun, in 500 years, or a thousand or more, when historians are still writing about Jewish history, David Grun's name will stand alongside that of our other greatest leaders. Abraham and Sarah, Moses, King David, Maimonides, the Baal Shem Tov. Even more so than Herzl, he made Israel the nation that it is today. And if you're thinking to yourself, the most important Jew in history and I've never heard of him, 
It's because you don't know him as David Grun. You know him by his adopted Hebrew name, David Ben-Gurion. That's next time. Talk to you then. Have a good week.